Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 170 of Fun with Cars for yet another postseason episode. I'm Robin Warner. And I am Jim Lau. And we'd actually like to start this week with a, uh, well, I say week as though this is a weekly thing. Um, it's wow. actually. It, for, what are you doing next week? For the Yeah, really. <laughs> taking care of my child and the <laughs> family. Wait, um, why do you, why? Yeah, really. Well, you've done, you did that last week. Yeah, well, you know, that's the thing about about people that need need things from me, um, like very very small people. Dude, you, you, you obsess over these things, it must be said. I guess. Uh, but no, we with, uh, start with follow-up and, uh, and and go from there. So in roughly chronological order, uh, we did get an email from listener Paul Peard about why he's a Williams fan. Yeah, and it really was a, a great email for uh, Mr. Peard to send to us. And it was two stories, both highlighting um, Frank Williams and the Williams team as not just good runners of a racing team, but just good people with real enthusiasm and a real spirit for what it is to be a fan of the sport and what it is to be someone that supports the fans and gives the fans reasons to be fans in the first place. And uh, just both of them kind of heartfelt touching. I mean, one touched on Frank Williams um, doing something real nice for an eight-year-old child, and the other one just showing... Uh, Frank's enthusiasm for for any fan that he can uh, help get him a little bit more of an incised taste of what it's like to be in Formula One. So both of them heartwarming stories, and we were hugely appreciative of Paul Peart for sending them to us. Yeah, and you may hear more from uh, about those in the future. Um, Craig the Kilt uh, on the Facebook page posted uh, the story about the Marusha team assets being sold. And there's a link there, uh, which we'll have in the show notes for you as well. And uh, there's there's just pictures of everything inside the office, and it's this a- this access that we don't normally get to see of what it looks like inside the you know the offices and sort of factory and, and everything. And some of it's just computers and things, but there is uh, these like CNC machines, all this stuff for machining for some uh, carbon fiber work, uh, lots of electronics things, of course. Uh, but one of the things was a 2015 concept car, which is cool to see, uh, but is the kind of thing that. Uh, if that, if pictures of that are now out in the world, and they are, um, and if that's trying to be sold to someone, that really kind of tells you that it's very, very you know, unlikely that that team is going to magically spring back into life, that someone's going to buy this stuff in, a, in such a capacity that they'd be able to actually still run a race team. It's I sort of like that cat is out of that bag. This is the starkest sign yet, in fact. Yeah. This is the strongest uh, nail in the coffin, as it were. It, it's fascinating, right? And the first thing I thought when I saw that was, Okay, Mercedes, problem solved. Now you have a 2015 car, too. Yeah, really. <laughs> anyway, uh, speaking of the teams with a little bit more trouble this year, Sean Scanlon posted about the Caterham team selling something for a dollar. Well, the team. A pound. Right, one pound, uh, roughly a dollar sixty at the time of, of the article. Uh, but yeah, it's it's one of these things where, of course, there's so much more to it than just simply the value of the one pound that was sort of a... Uh, you know, just an amount they had to pick to sign for it. Because really the key is that uh, the buyer is taking on all these debts and everything. So it's kind of like, you know, we've had stories uh, certainly here in, in the you know Detroit area of Michigan of, you know, a house being sold for $100 or whatever. And it's like, not, the point isn't that you actually get a house that's perfect uh, or, you know, anywhere near perfect. Um, the point is probably if you're buying something property for such a low value like he is with this team, it, it's really this just you're taking on the debt and you're hopefully going to do something with that. Um, so 
It is. It was uh, the, a Romanian footballer, Constantin Kojokar. I'm sure that's that's a different way of saying it with a Romanian uh, pronunciation, but whatever. Um, but, you know, he will be taking on, apparently pay, taking on the debts and so on. So that one, they've said they, they you know, they, they've, uh, you know, the Caterham team has long said they hope to be back on the grid in 2015. Uh, we haven't seen them, you know, we haven't seen pictures of their 2015 concept car. So I guess you could say, in a way, it's more likely that we're going to see a Caterham next year than a Marussia at this point. But uh, it doesn't look great, uh, certainly for either team, but uh, certainly, you know, it's it's not super rosy for, uh, for Caterham either. Yeah, absolutely right. And, you know, it's, it gets into a deeper conversation of, the balance of money and the balance of power in Formula One, and is it the right structure for smaller teams to survive and you know yet thrive? And you know it's tough because I go back and forth with this. Right, you look at Caterham and Marussia, and you say, yeah, they are new teams. It's really hard to get ahead, and they're just you know burning money hand over fist losing it, losing it, losing it, and getting nowhere. But at the same time, you know, look at Force India. They're a solid mid-pack team. Look at uh, what was Stuart Haas that became Jaguar, now Red Bull Racing. Okay, yeah. Dieter Banshef did have a couple of dollars to throw at it, but the point is... A lot more than one pound, yeah. (laughs) The point is, it's genuinely conflicting for me because at first glance, you could say, yeah, it's the money struggle, the money situation is really lopsided and favors the bigger teams. You can see that argument. But at the other time, it's like, yeah, but new teams have broke into this and been successful. So I don't know. And we have yet another experiment to look at. We have the Gene, Gene Haas and Haas Racing coming into the fold, expecting to have a car in 2016. Um, he's going to have Ferrari technical support and Ferrari backing. Well, he's backing Ferrari in exchange for. And... It's I don't know. To me, it's still an open-ended question, but it is getting closer and closer to the surface in terms of something's going to change because the smaller teams are getting less and less patient with this. And then, okay, I'll throw out another team name, Sauber. They're they're they're, they're on doing, the other end of Force India. They're falling back. But say they're doing great, right? Uh, right. That, you know, and they have and Force India and Sauber are in the position. They've they've come out with uh, press releases to the effect of. Like, hey guys, you know, we're not we're not out of money yet. Like, see, there's a team, you know, we're not going into administration, but we're not really great here. So we really need to figure something out. And there's been some more talks, you know, renewed talks, especially after the two teams left, um, about you know revisiting cost caps and how that could how that could manifest itself in dealing with that. Which I think a lot of people, not everyone though, agree to in principle. But the reality of it is going to that's really what the you know how it works out in the details is really the key of whether that's going to work or not. Because, you know, lots of these companies have very clever people that are, you know, all about not necessarily getting around rules, but very, very clever interpretations of rules and how to make the most of that. So just saying you can spend no more than X on your Formula 1 team in any given year is just no good. There's so many ways to get around development costs and buying things in and say, oh, yeah, well, you know, Red Bull, you know, Limited might be building this engine for hundreds of millions of pounds, but we bought it for a dollar. And then, you know, Red Bull Incorporated over here in whatever country is, is you know, developing chassis or whatever. Like, there's ways of getting around all these things. And uh, so the implementation of the cost cap is really going to be the key or how or cost caps or however multiple tiers or whatever whatever comes into it. Um, you know, of course, no one well, solution I mean, is going to make everyone happy. Either. Listen to your own. The fact that it's confusing might be part of the problem. Well, that on its own. Right. 
Um, we had uh, another bit of follow-up from um, Eleanor on Facebook um, posting the um, the Bianchi uh, accident panel, I guess it was called, the, you know, the group of right. people looking into what happened here, why is, you know, what was the, what was the deal? And there wasn't, there wasn't anything, um, you know, surprising really. It was all, you know, we, we know roughly what happened, um, but how it was a combination of, you know, the light conditions weren't great. Obviously it was raining more heavily. Everyone was under safety car conditions. Uh, but one of the, some of the things they looked well, at. And they were not under safety uh, car right. conditions. It was a local yellow. Local yellow. That's right. Um, and, uh, and it was the, uh, you know, obviously the accident, uh, crew out to service Sutil's car that was in the process of being recovered. Um, and, but it basically comes down to Bianchi did not slow sufficiently to avoid losing control at the same point in track as Sutil, um, which is ultimately the issue, um, after he went, and then part of that they say was, uh, these rivers across the track, some standing water, not standing water, but deep sort of, uh, you well, know, deep enough Standing rivers. water, effectively. I right. mean, the equivalent of. Right. It was enough, it was a flow of water that was consistent enough and heavy enough that it would effectively be standing. It functioned as a puddle. And I think I, what's important here is there's in my mind there was never really an issue that Bianchi lost control of the car. Nothing outside, no outside force directly caused him to lose control of the car that was unsafe. You know what I mean? It's right. not like it was Mario Kart and I was like, oh, turtle slip, and uh, he hit a shell or something like that. He lost control of the car. The main issue that really needs to be discussed is, okay, he lost control of the car, but all the usual safety measures that are in place of track safety were negated by the fact that there was a huge several-ton crane right in his uh, right in his trajectory, and that's what he hit. And cranes um, do not have safer barriers, so um, that's the issue, right? So. It's good to know exactly what happened for him to lose control. Um, the fact that they're saying he's the one that lost control, he didn't slow down enough, that's an important point to make because uh, it's, you can kind of warn drivers more sternly and you can say this is why we need people to slow down more. You can make those points. But I just feel like it's an important point to make that this says nothing to people wishing Jules Bianchi a full and speedy recovery and certainly not adding any blame to him for hitting a crane. It's just that he was in fact the one that lost control of the car. And this is why it's like, to me, a side note, it's a footnote. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the other points here, um, was like, okay, yes, the, the car, the ultimate, the accident, really the problem injury and everything was from his car striking that crane. And part of the point is there's not a way to feasibly make it safe for a car to hit a crane. Exactly. What you need to do is make sure that cars don't hit cranes rather than put a skirt around the crane or even the closed cockpit thing because that was, of course, reignited. That whole conversation was reignited. And, like, to make something that's safe enough in all axes for all possibilities of cars hitting cranes is just really not feasible. Um, And, of course, there's all, you know, even, like, with seatbelts or with anything else, you know, there are times when something designed for safety can make make it less safe in certain circumstances if it's, you know, uh, slower to get out of the car because it's on fire and all of a sudden you're trapped in the, yeah, anyway there's all kinds of issues that could go on with closed po- co- cockpits and things like that so to say ultimately yes this was a driver error but the other technical thing that i thought was interesting was um when he went off track um uh, the data show that uh jules hit uh basically full gas and full brake 
Um, we don't exactly know why, and he probably doesn't remember if, uh, and so on. But um, <laughs> I would doubt that he remembers. Right. Uh, but uh, there's a failsafe that's supposed to override the engine signal and and apply brakes. But his car had a unique brake by wire system, which is all they're saying about it so far. Is it was unique to his car, and the, that was not compatible with a failsafe. So something in the spec McLaren ECU was supposed to say, hey, you've got full throttle and full brake, cut power, which is actually pretty typical of most automotive ECUs, especially uh, with... Uh, I mean, essentially you know, mandated. It, it, it yeah. completely it, it sparks the whole controversy that happened with, uh, at least here in the States, of Toyota throttle systems not uh, doing the exact same thing. They don't kill throttle when the brake's applied. And now Toyotas go... They're now on the very conservative side of that, whereas they were a little bit more on the liberal side of that and then also wrongly i'm saying wrongly accused in some situations of not shutting off uh not shutting off throttle at all even when the brakes are applied right so yeah it's actually very similar to something that was controversial and uh, in in the production car case it actually um indirectly at least caused uh, a couple of deaths yeah so anyway it's it's interesting to see um, so the recommendations that came out of that, right, is new uh, double yellow flag uh, regulations, which they're, they've been talking about in the in the you know in the recent weeks. Um, this virtual safety car, things like that, but also um, and then you know a review of the safety critical software, right? There should be a, f- a fail safe shouldn't fail. That's not safe. <laughs> I mean, but, uh, so you know, looking at how these things are interconnected, and if you change something on the braking system of the car, I guess making sure that that's compatible with any fail safes uh, is they're going to look at that more closely now. But track drainage, you know, that seems like a very logical thing to look at um, to avoid. You know, avoid the problem in the first place rather than the cockpits to make it, um, you know, to make it say, OK, yeah, now it's safe to crash this car into a crane. Like you can't make that safe. So I look- agree with you on principle and I'm sorry to interject, but I, to me, it's really important to um, take take one moment because what I don't want is to have a, an emotional claim. Because you're getting a bit emotional here, Jim. But I don't want people to get up in arms and say the tracks need to have better drainage and this needs to happen because I'm afraid that that could have an unintended consequence of neutering tracks we love even further. And I don't want that to happen. And Suzuka is one of my favorites. Right. Would it be worse for you if it had better drainage, though? Well, it would be worse for me if, to give it better drainage, we lost some other attributes of the track. And I'm not saying, like, oh, we have to repave and straighten out all the S's, per se, but... <laughs> it's, now, it's, it's now a big oval. <laughs> right. It's like, well, but, those, tra- those cars... Well, it drains better. No, but what I'm saying is it's those type of nuances that you can kind of lose. And if you look at every single modern track, they look at things like that, and drainage is usually addressed uh, better, but... Um, whenever we go to an older track, people are like, ah, the old track that's got something, there's something about it. Also, please, let's not forget that this was an impending typhoon coming. <laughs> this was not just, oh, a bit of rain. Do you see what I'm saying? This was a bit extraordinary for that specific case. Right. Uh, so other recommendations were the four-hour rule. They should say, a uh, you know, make sure that the races don't start where it's going to be within four hours of uh, sunset. Um, but also look at the calendars to avoid putting cars in rainy seasons basically you know having a race during the rainy season and this is especially for the asian countries malaysia and you know singapore hasn't really been an issue but um, i guess because it's not in the rainy season but uh you know yeah. some of these places w- that have a, a known rainy season and saying why is the race actually during the rainiest part of the year for this for this part of the world so uh looking at that way i think makes a lot of sense as well it's just that's a more practical uh you know rather than like 
you know, closed cockpit. It's like, let's not have a race that's, you know, during a typhoon if possible. And, uh, you know, some of these things don't, uh, you can't predict, but some of these things you can, you know, it's like when is, when does it normally rain in, 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 you know, China, Korea, Japan, uh, Malaysia, you know, some of these places where there's, uh, you know, the, this big effects off the Pacific ocean that, uh, that they deal with and, uh, and in dealing with that accordingly. And then also they want, uh, you know, more, more testing of the wet tires and stuff like that, which also I think seems, seems reasonable. Yeah. There was an article I read, uh, not this one that, discuss the fact that Jules Bianchi's tires were 18 laps worn and that was part of the problem. It's like, yeah, but his he and his team made that decision to stay on those tires and use them the way they did. And I'm not saying don't look at intermediate and wet tires at all, but I'm saying we we have to keep reminding ourselves that it's not up to us to regulate this thing to the point that we're not allowing teams to make their own decisions. So I guess, a, you know, I, I might be coming across with a general naysayer attitude here. I guess the only point I'm trying to make is I'm sensitive to the idea that we don't overreact to this. As terrible as what happened to Jules Bianchi is, we want to make sure we don't overreact to this in a way that hurts our sport and doesn't necessarily help us. Right. And I'm thinking, you know, drainage is a, is a reasonable thing to look at. Anyway. As long as it doesn't hurt other characteristics of the track, <laughs> the Japanese oval well, the, would the, not be as much fun. Right. Or really the the shame would be if they say, well, the the drainage at Monza is no is not good enough, so we can't run there anymore. You know, right. that would be a loss, and I agree with that. But I'm thinking that's the kind of thing. It's not like saying, oh, all the tracks need to be X meters wide, so, oh, let's just widen out. You know, oh, Rouge, yeah, let's just make that wider. Let's just change that. You know, that's the kind of thing that either the—, the uh, the tracks couldn't afford, so they wouldn't happen again. Or if they could say, "Oh yeah, well, that would really change the character of the racing." But ideally, the you know the drainage and stuff like that shouldn't matter so much for the character of the track. And just looking at you know, there's probably now that it's being looked at some fairly simple ways, maybe not simple, but um, you know, some some ways that wouldn't be a, a huge reengineering of the you know racing surface at all, but just the stuff around there, you know, sloping, uh, you know, just the earth around there a little bit to uh, to make it work. And I, I to that point, I, I want to say I I actually I have a I. I'm in favor of a strict no typhoons in Japan policy. I think Japan is a bit lackluster about this, and I'd say it's like, hey, Japan, just no more typhoons, okay? Or at least no typhoons during F1 season or something. You know, let's compromise here a little bit. That's a very reasonable uh, prediction. Well, thank you. Well, I thank you. Um, Sean posts to the Facebook page the story of the Red Bull trophies being stolen. I don't know if you saw that, but uh, that what a shame. I mean, that's that's like... Of all the crimes to commit, like, you know, people rob banks and they end up with lots of money and that's that's one thing or whatever. But, like, these trophies aren't worth anything. I mean, hardly any. I mean, some of them might have gold in them and stuff. But, like, the point of the trophy is not that the item itself is valuable and that you've then you gain something by doing that. Also, they're all very specific. It's like this is the trophy for winning, you know, the 2012 whatever Grand Prix. Like, Everyone knows who won that race. It's yeah. a very easy thing to find. So if right. you have this trophy, so whoever, so somebody smashed a, like a four by four, some SUV or whatever, through the front glass, you know, entrance to the factory there, grabbed a bunch of, if not all, the trophies in the room there, and left. And which you know, some people are talking about. Oh, I can't believe the security wasn't better and whatever. It's like there's only so much you can do about someone driving a vehicle through your your glass front. You could say yes, let's have uh, you know concrete instead of glass and very you know thin windows that you can't get through in some banks and some federal buildings and stuff. Do that now is, is you know to avoid uh, problems. But like 
for a place like that. I mean, I've been in that room, you know, actually, and, and had pictures with uh, with all the trophies, and there's, you know, a car hanging up on the wall and all kinds of cool stuff. And at that point, they had the uh, World Drivers Trophy and Constructors Trophy, right, you know, right there, because this was during the Red Bull, you know, reign of dominance. And um, But it's like, it seems really, really dumb, because first of all, the trophies, what's important about them to Red Bull is the you know the work that went into them right and the achievement of having won this thing so oh, i thought it was the intrinsic value so you can melt them down you know and then uh get a gold box <laughs> melt it down but it's like so the, they haven't taken that away but they've taken away the symbol of what that is but also what are you going to do with these trophies somebody's going to have them in you know either in a warehouse somewhere because they can't show it to anyone or if they ever show it to anyone or try to sell it to someone who you know realizes that this is a crappy thing to do they're going to, you know, get turned in and say, hey, this is the guy. He stole this trophy from Red Bull because there's only one of these trophies around and that must have been where it was from. So it's like really it just doesn't make any sense as a, as a crime to commit other than to get attention. But then we don't know who these people are. So it's not like they've gotten any attention. So right. anyway, uh, crappy and, thing to do. And whoever did that is, you know, one of the worst kind of people. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, in, in other news, uh, uh, Jean-Eric Verne had to get his 4x4 SUV in for detailing. Because um, someone scratched the front up of it with glass. And guys, this is the same kind of thing. Like, why do that to an F1 driver? I don't see any point in that. And why use glass? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, yeah, yeah. Jewel, see, people were making the Vettel jokes as well. Like, Jewel oh, he's a seemed, Ferrari now. Jules to- seemed very okay about the thing. He was very uh, high level about his SUV getting broken. And he seemed very happy, in fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but it is it is a worthy uh, mention that uh, it has been confirmed that uh, Jean-Eric Verne will not be in Toro Rosso, in the Toro Rosso next year. It will be uh, uh, Wunderkid Max Verstappen and I do believe Carlos Sainz Jr. got the other seat. Yes, which was widely uh, rumored to be the case um, a while ago. But then it was like, well, are they going to keep John Verne or is it going to be Carlos Sainz? And I guess before it was confirmed uh, that Verstappen was going to get the drive, it was looking like maybe Carlos Sainz and John Eric Verne or whatever. So uh, that that's happened. Um, and then also uh, as a as a tag on to that, um, with a couple of these new rules that were just ratified just at this uh, postseason meeting of the FIA working group. Um, one of the new requirements for a super license is to be 18 or older. So <laughs> Max Verstappen may be the youngest F1 driver ever because he got in just before the rules were, and it's at the it's 17, I guess, that when he started. That is really funny. And um, that may, that I mean, who knows? These things could change later on, but uh, that also could be maybe they don't change, and uh, he could be the youngest F1 driver for a very, very long time. Well, you know, it is, it's a funny rule to have. Like, it makes me wonder why they made it. I mean... Was it a fear that maybe Max Verstappen was a warning of a tidal wave of tidal wave coming of younger and younger drivers getting into the sport? Because it's like, oh, when you're young, you don't care about X, Y, and Z, and you can go faster. I don't know. I'm completely speculating wildly here, but I just I'm wondering if someone feared more and more of this coming, so they were like, let's put a stop to it. Yeah. Well. Which seems which seems dumb to me because it seems like you have other ways of policing whether people that have super licenses are uh, should have super licenses. You know, if, if if they have meet certain safety criteria and if they have you know penalties for if they if they're driving poorly or making bad you know having bad judgment or something like that, then you know take away their license for that. Whether they're you know nineteen or sixteen or twenty five or fifty or whatever, you know, it's like it seems like you have ways of of, of you know having people on their merit have this uh, have this license or not. And if they don't have it, then, uh, you know, that separate from their age uh, could be a thing. But I guess uh, 
That's that's now a rule. So uh, Verstappen does does get to stay in, but in the future, anyone else to get a new super license uh, has to be 18 or older, at least for now. And then who knows, maybe in a couple of years, there'll be some other new prodigy kid will come up and they'll make an exception and it'll be okay. Um, But one of the other things that was ratified at this meeting was that double points would be scrapped for 2015 and potentially beyond. And uh, Craig the Kilt posted that story to our wall as well on Facebook. And, um, you know, we agree with that statement, you know, with with the we idea do. of getting we rid of do. double points. We we've not been uh, anyone, you know, coming out in favor of saying, "Well, double points is really a great idea," and uh, we've spent plenty of time talking about that. But um, I mean, yeah, it's 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 over and done. I guess we can we can we can shut up about it and uh, and move on, right? No, no, I refuse. I, well, I refuse to shut up anyway. But uh, about that specifically, in fact, we're going to get into that just a little bit in a little while. Um, and I just wanted to really quickly say thank you to the folks that uh, listened to our last podcast with uh, uh, my new favorite nickname and title form, Photo Ace, Jamie Price. Um, uh, it was a lot of fun to talk to him, catch up. And uh, I got to say real quick, lots of credit for the man for uh, speaking to us after all that jet lag. I mean, he just like just went for it yeah Good that, for him. that is a long long day of travel and time zones and everything else so uh yeah to 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 talk coherently after that was a it was an accomplishment indeed and we always enjoy having jamie on the show and hopefully we will hear from him again soon uh in some form or other i mean we've got all kinds of projects we're talking about so okay should be good absolutely but i think you know there's something to talk about which is mclaren and its driver lineup it's still a mystery, and actually the fact that it's still a mystery is making it a little bit more of a mystery. Right, and we talked about this with uh, with Jamie last week of, you know, we kept, we, you and I, Robin, have been looking around, and it's nowhere officially, uh, nothing is officially announced for McLaren, and the media has been treating it as as though it's official, but just, oh yeah, it's, of course it's official, it's just not announced yet, but not announced yet means it's not official that Alonzo would be at McLaren next year. You know, there's like, it's people, journalists, writers, whatever, are taking it sort of as a given. And it's not, that's, that's not a given yet. So part of the, the wonder um, what it is that's, you know, why hasn't McLaren, uh, you know, announced their driver lineup yet? Is it going to be, is it between Button and Magnuson and Alonzo's a given? Is it between all three and they don't know exactly how they're going to go? Is Alonzo negotiating a deal with, you know, Porsche or, you know, Toyota or who knows right. what. Which is ironic you say that because that's also been uh, part of the rumor mirror that Jensen Button has been negotiating with Porsche. Right. So so there's all kinds of what-ifs here. And it, it, for a while, I was one of those guys saying, he's going to McLaren. This is overblown. And I'm, I was there 100% of the way pretty much since October. Now it's December, and I'm maybe 80%. I still feel like, yeah, that's probably going to be what it is, and it's probably just speculation going on. But, God, it's like, why hasn't it been announced yet? I'm seeing fewer and fewer reasons for it to be a mystery still. Right. So, as of now, nothing is still has been officially announced. Um, as we yeah, record and this, we should we should double check the articles right. no, as we record. I, I mean, it's it's right there. The only the only openings on the uh, you know on the grid for next year are the two spots at Caterham, which are questionably 
you know, even exists, I guess. You know, will cater them even be there? What you mean is they're awesome. Right. Uh, and then... I'd buy that for a dollar. Hey. Huh? Get it? A yeah, dollar? Or a pound. And I just need 60 cents. Um, and then uh, and then McLaren. You know, everything else, we know who's going to be where. Um, I guess we don't know the test drivers and stuff yet. But and anyway. in, I have, in 2014, McLaren had two very good drivers. Right. So, yeah, it's 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 not an easy question, but it's also... Um, shouldn't be this long. So it does seem like there's something else going on with negotiations with, you know, out of those three drivers, who's going to drive where and, and who knows what. Maybe Jean-Eric Verne's going to drive for McLaren next year. And it's all, you know, this whole thing was a distraction. And uh, who knows, right? But um, Yes, but it, it has been announced uh, at Autosport that uh, for Alonso, leaving Ferrari was very difficult. Right. Also, so. well, it's been announced that Nico Hulkenberg <laughs> is taking part in uh, WEC. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. In addition to... Right. Force India. Which is interesting. Because um, at first I saw that and I was like, oh, yeah, because he's out of F1 now. I'm like, wait, no, he's not. He's still in he's <laughs> Force India. He's still got to drive there. So, um, and, I mean, the other couple things that came out of this meeting, just while we're talking about, um, was the official calendar for next year, a quote-unquote official. I mean, I guess it's provisional because it could still change, um, which included a uh, 21st race in Korea. Yes. You see that? Which the key thing for that is that means if they had 21 races, teams would get five powertrains to use for the year instead of four, which would drastically... They, they would like that, except the travel of going back and forth across the world as many times as they have to do to do 21 races would be a big deal. But also the Korean date conflicts with the WEC date. So there's a question of, is this some uh, a bit of a po- ah. like political power play of like, oh, well, if you have to, you know, Formula One is better than WEC. So, yeah, we can have it uh, have in the same date. And, we're, you know, we're going to, you know, anyone who wants to follow this as fans or participate as, you know, sponsors and as corporations, let alone the teams and drivers, um, has to pick one or the other. And, you know, damn it, they better pick F1. Right. Um, I think that the that race will not happen because apparently it was a surprise to the Korean race organizers that they were on the calendar. Um, that seems like just some sort of political. Was it? I didn't read that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, so anyway, that's probably not going to happen. But it does. You know, of course, it does have the race in Mexico and uh, and and all the rest of it. So anyway, that's uh, probably that Korean race for 2015 is not going to happen. But it is technically on the calendar for right now. And uh, anyway, so there's plenty you going just, on. You just got to love the politi- the politics and the way things are leveraged in this sport. It is just silly. Right. Well, I, I don't think any other uh, sport has this level of ridiculousness attached to it. It may. We just follow F1 more closely than everything else. True enough, well, but this is this is silly. Well, if you remember the 2010 season, and who doesn't, um, with uh, the Canadian Grand Prix was originally scheduled for June 6th. Um, and then I, you know, which I was like, yeah, that's okay. But that's the day after my wedding. And like, <laughs> you know, I got married on Saturday and I was like, oh, we could go to Canada, whatever. So, you know, I put in some calls, talked to Bernie, talked to my people, had to move it back a week and that worked. And then it was, it was moved back a week and then we could actually go there as newlyweds and go see the race in Montreal, which we did. So, uh, you know, these things do change even when an official calendar is published. When, when powerful enough people... Make right. a stand, you know. I think is what you're saying, and I and I agree. Exactly. That's that's how that went down. So, um, someone let me into the Excel. I am in the Excel. The Excel. Oh boy. <laughs> no, it's an interesting. It's a fascinating thing. Uh, the way points have worked. It seems like you know, in our relatively short history of being close fans of Formula One. It's changed one time in a fairly drastic way, going from a ten points, ten points to the winner to twenty five points to the winner, and increasing the spread from eight people to ten. Right. Although you did some research to how far, you know, how how that's changed even over the years since well before we've been watching and before we've been alive. It exactly right, and that's just it. It's changed a lot more than I thought. I mean, and I'm just real quick. I, so 
let me first say uh, I'm looking at a Wikipedia article. It seems legitimate. Uh, everything that I know coincides with this, but this is my this is my mea culpa if I've believed Wikipedia just a little bit too much. Anyway, point is point is <laughs> the original the original system for championship points was that you got eight points for first, six points for second, four points for third, three for fourth, and two for fifth, and one point for having the fastest lap of the race. Mm -hmm. That was it. In addition to that, only four of the races counted towards the driver's championship, not the entire field. Okay. So this... This uh, trundled along like this for a, a while, where um, it was eight points to win, six to win, but there was an additional point for fastest lap. And then in 1960, the additional point for fastest lap went away. And then in 1962, excuse me, in 1962, it uh, you got a ninth point for winning, and uh, you got one point for sixth. So that happened – oh, I'm sorry. That happened – one point for sixth happened in 1960. Um, nine points for winning um, happened without any exceptions in 1962. And uh, then it wasn't until 1991 that you got a tenth point for winning the race. And in addition, another big change in 1991. 1991 was actually the first year where the drivers the driver's championship included – all the races there was no best number out of number right and that that is something that i think if you and i were elder and uh had watched this port a lot longer that would have come as a big relief to us because that does seem a bit ridiculous yeah i mean you think about um you know throwing away a bad performance whatever yeah you know certainly 2007 hamilton would have loved to have uh, have shanghai not count toward the final tally and that would have i think won him his championship exactly you know there's definitely it, it would have it would have changed things in dramatic ways but also makes it unpredictable although you know there is a counter side to it which you know maybe you were about to say but i interrupted <laughs> but you know it, it, when this originally started, reliability was different right. than it was in the 90s. I guess the question, my, my thinking was, is that better or worse than double points at the last round? You know, if it's saying, oh, well, you can pick any one to throw away, which, of course, if you have any unreliable prop, you know, race where you get zero points, I'm like, well, that's going to be the one, and then how that would play out. But I came across this article on F1 Fanatic, uh, posted uh, November 17th, um, about a point system, and I think it summarizes the, the main issues pretty well. Um, where the first, you know, what should a point system do? One is decide a worthy champion, driver, and team. So part of it is just who wins it all outright at the top. And is and is it appropriate for the accomplishments that they had throughout the season? Right. Does that, you know, reflect who is the rightful winner uh, in people's minds? Uh, behind that, though, ranking the other uh, drivers and teams behind that. Because, of course, that we've talked a lot about, you know, who's ninth and 10th place in the championship exactly and how that works. Right. So. Uh, you know, does it properly reward those slash penalize whatever? You know, properly uh, reward those for um, for what's in the back uh, background there. Um, the simplicity of the points. If it's super complicated, then that seems like a failing in itself. Um, exactly right. So that's that's an issue. And then also keeping the championship alive, which is everything to do with double points. Um, but you know, if if it's super easy to clinch the championship way early on, uh, then that can be a, an issue. And then uh, for some people. You know, and then they actually had people vote on. Which and that, that that last point's actually interesting. I don't entirely agree with that. Right. Well, that's one of the questions is, 
um, how much does that matter? And uh, and then so people did a they did a, a survey for that. And the m- number one thing was to you know um, decide a worthy championship driver and team. After that, rank all the drivers and teams behind them. Um, behind that was award the same number of points per round. You know, it was the most important thing people thought. Absolutely. Um, behind that was be clear and simple to understand. So that's not as important for people. And the very last one was weight the points so that, you know, towards deciding p- the title at the final race. Only 1% of people thought that was the most important thing that F1 points should do. So that tells you something that the simplicity isn't actually a, as prime uh, of, a, of a factor as, a, as the other ones are. Um, and, you know, the, the idea of keeping points alive to the very end that's you know as fans of the sport who we're going to watch every race anyway uh it's easy for us to say yeah we don't care if it's clinched or not because we're still going to watch it and we think the racing is exciting enough anyway but for commercial reasons you can tell it's pretty clear why they would want to have you know more more eyeballs on more races um so i kind of understand the commercial reasoning behind that but obviously they've backed up a little bit uh from the double points thing obviously because that is now officially gone for 2015 it was pretty much universally considered ridiculous and so that is why it's good that it's gone and there is definitely some interesting questions to be made about why uh, how much weight should be given to winning and uh, where the excitement is i think one of the critical elements for me isn't just who's winning the championship but also who's scoring better than whom else like what's what's the competitive competitiveness as we go down the order right and i think that's another element that would help keep people engaged i mean it certainly helps jim and i for certain and it's interesting you know it was all the way until 2000 and it was until 2010 that we had 10 points go to the winner and uh, then it went down from there in 2003 they wanted to give points all the way down to eighth instead of just sixth so they made it 10 points to win and eight points for second and that that one seemed like, oh, wow, there's not actually a huge difference between first and second. So in 2010, they upped it to 25 points, 18 points for second. And that's more or less what we've been uh, going through. But now, um, in, 2000, in 2014, we had double points, and in 2015, they're gone. Good news, Formula One and the FIA more broadly. I have personally taken the time. I've gotten out of Excel, and I have solved your problem. I have come up with a point system, and knowing that I don't know everything, just most things, Right. Jim and I are going to discuss this in real time right now. I have not seen this yet. And sort out the best way forward. So this will be the official Fun With Cars point system for Formula One. For Formula One. All right. Yes. So hit me. All right. So just just a little bit of background real quick. Um, one thing that was important to me was uh, the ratio of how many points you got for winning versus getting second place. Right. And I think a lot of people get hung up on the actual number of points. Like, oh, 25, that's too many points. And I think we can I think we can all look past that and recognize that, however, what the actual number of points is really doesn't matter. Right. It's the ratio of how that how that you know how close that is to the, the points around it right um, because yeah. it's the ratio that determines how those points will add up over a championship over a season not the number itself exactly like if you got a hundred thousand points for uh first place well then game over if you won you've won that's the end of it unless you got nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred well nine ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine for second and it's like wait hold on do you see my point so um Anyway, real historical, what we have right now 
is if you get if you win the race, you get twenty five points. If you finish second, you get seventy two percent of that with eighteen points. Okay? okay. Yep. Before that, it was you got ten points for winning the race, but if you were in second place, you got eight. You got eighty percent of the points for getting in second place. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go uh, more historically, before that, it was ten points and six. 10 points to win, 6 points for second. That was only 60% of the points. So that was a big gap. And that that was a point system um, in which which Michael Schumacher had in 2002 when he wrapped up the championship in, like, July. Yeah. Right? And then, finally, um, even getting even more historical, it was 9 points to win the race and 6 points to finish in second. And that was a system that was used for a long time. And that is 6 points was 67% of 9 points. Right, two-thirds. Okay, so what I'm proposing is something that gives a little bit more to the win than what we currently have right now. Okay. So I'm sticking with 25 points for the win, but I'm dropping it to 17 points for second place. Reason being, that is 68% of the win. Sounds reasonable. And that so that means that gives a little bit more weight to winning than we currently have and just puts it much more much more closely aligned with the historical nine to six points ratio, which is what we had for a long time. Sure. Okay. And to keep to keep it stable, one thing I wanted to I didn't want second to third place to then feel unreasonably tight. So I also dropped a point for third place. Third place would be worth fourteen points, not fifteen. Same reasons. Yeah. Okay. Now, how does your third... Is there, like, a podium advantage and a jump between from third to fourth? There is, sort of. It's 15 to 12 right now. And um, if you look at the ratio of points to the winner, currently as we stand, 15 points, that's 60% of the 25 for winning. Yep. Okay. In my situation, it would be 56% um, to winning. Okay. Now, the gap would tighten because I'm keeping 12 I'm keeping 12 points for fourth place. Right. Okay. So that means that if you're in 12th place, you get just a tiny bit less than half the points to win, and that's still the case in my new system. So getting on the podium, being in third place isn't as much as a, of a bump as it used to be. Sure. Okay. Now, fourth place, 12 points, just like I said, same as before. Now, this is where I start getting pretty different from 12th points from fourth place down, every position kills a point. Okay? So fifth is 11th, sixth is 10th, and on down the list. That means that there is less of a ratio difference between finishing eighth to seventh than it used to. Okay, and then how far back does that go? But that's just it. That means 15th place gets a point. I like that. Right, right, because I was—that's one of the one of the thoughts I was getting to. I keep—I want to say one of the points, but that's awkward. Um, <laughs> is is that we when we were looking at some of our spreadsheet stuff um, for comparing teammates, which uh, you know is another a good topic to talk about later. Um, one of the one of the things we looked at is on Formula One dot com how they rank drivers and teams who haven't gotten any points yet, and it's based right. on finishing positions. And, and it goes—it's basically your best finishing position outranks anything else, not your average finishing right, position, which. You know, is sort of a philosophical debate, right? Is if if you can have, as with Marusha and you know, and Bianchi and Monaco, it's like if you can have one, you know, stellar for your team result, 
is that better than a consistent string of 11th places or 12th places or whatever? So I feel like having the points go right. back farther is just a cl- much clearer way for teams to know who is ahead of whom, and that does reward if you're consistently 11th place and you you know you get points for that, um, rather than if one time you got a ninth and then everywhere else it was well, you know tenth. You or mentioned one, you know. ninth. That's exactly it. Did Marusha this season really do better than Sauber? I, I, I kind of like them better, but that's you not. You like them better, but is that? I don't. I don't think that's. Right. I don't think that's entirely fair. Right. No. I mean, yeah. That's. I, I would agree. Um, but I also. I don't like. I also don't like the idea of making the point system bumped up a bunch, just so that you could report reward points all the way down to every position. I do think. I do think there is something uh, meritable to. Is that a word? Worth merit uh, to say no 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 you have to get somewhere to get points and but i feel like that should be a low bar well, i think if I it's 15th most every team uh, sometime in the season should be able to get a couple of points right although i don't think that's a problem i mean of some some of the uh, proposals people were talking about on that on that article in the comments and so on um and that i am on board with is what if a win is 100 points and then, of course, the ratios could even be the same as what you've got back there. But yeah, that well, makes it pretty place would be sixty-eight. Makes it pretty easy to calculate um, if there is a four hundred point differential. Well, we know that's four wins. You know, twenty-five isn't is you know easier math to do, but hundred is super simple right. um, for us with our ten fingers and base ten counting and all that to this look at true. and think. Okay, what is the gap between these two drivers? How many wins? You know, what does it take to do that? Um, and especially now that we don't have double points, um, to be able to see as, as the season closes down. You know, you can very easily mentally do the math to figure it out. So, like, the idea of 10 points for a win, um, which, as you mentioned, was actually not... It was from 1991 to 2009. Was You know, it sort of seems like the classic system, but it's actually not, in the grand scheme of things, uh, the, right. the system for that long. But that was a pretty easy mental math to do, um, with, with 10 points being a super easy number to, uh, to do math on. Um, but if it's 100 points and then the other one's behind there, um, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem with points going all the way back because you could make then the distinction between finishing the race at a low position and not finishing the race. If that's then the decider to say, if you, you know, if your car retires, if you're not still running at the end of the race, um, then you get no points. Uh, but if you are still running that, at least for the teams at the very bottom, where that is a struggle to just get to the end of the race and let alone, you know, pass some other people doing so, then I think that does reward a, a team for at least reliability. And you figure, okay, you're going to get, you know, one point and the other guy's getting 100 or you're going to get, you know, a handful of points and some of the other guys are getting way higher. But, um, you know, awarding teams all the way back, to me, doesn't sound like a bad thing to, so that everyone has some number of points. If you've finished any race, you've got at least a point and then it makes it very easy to rank the other teams, you know, even at the low end of the grid um, to see who's doing what. So I think there's some merit to that, but the, that does... You know, it is, it is a difference uh, from you know to say, oh, now you know at the end of the at the end of the season, if this guy's got two thousand points because he's won you know lots of races, right? That's obviously a big change from what we've got now. Right, right. It's 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 a worthy discussion, and there is a possibility. This is uh, something we could talk about. I wonder if you make it so that you inflate the points to a certain level. No, see, no. I I was about to say something. I instantly I was going to say. For finishing the race, you get a point. Like, finish the race is worth a point. No, that's totally stupid. Right. Because, you know, if you're bull- if between 15th and 18th makes, and you but everyone finished, then you're all the same. No, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I guess for me, there's still something to be said for if you're in 16th place and you're 
are fighting for 15th, or let's say you're in a top team and something happens to you and you end up dawdling around 20, 20th place, you know, I think there's going to be a much more hustle to say, oh, if I push really hard, I can still get into the points, earn a couple of points, uh, as opposed to, oh, well, I'm going to get a point for finishing this point and only be a couple more points for this place, or... Um, oh, I'm so far behind the points, there's no point in pushing. I, I don't know. For me, there's still kind of a an interesting compromise for incentives here to keep it so that there are places where you don't score a point. Okay. Um, now, here's where it got interesting for me. So, obviously, I don't believe in double points and all this kind of stuff. Sure. But if you look at the history, there was, you know, historically, you did get a point for fastest lap. Yeah, I was just going to ask about that. Yeah. I don't want to give a point for fastest lap. Really? But, but, I do, I do want to give a point for one thing in particular, and I want to talk about one for the other. But let me first say, I thought about it a long time. Should there be points for qualifying? And at first, I was like, oh, you can give a point to the person that secures pole. And I instantly thought, no, there's plenty of desire to get pole already. Mm-hmm. That is a, especially in the modern day age, a huge advantage for getting the race wins. So yeah. I don't want that. Then I started thinking, well, what if you gave a point to each person that led uh, Q1, Q2, Q3? I'm like, no, that's not really going to do much good either. Because you could argue you could come ahead. You could gain a point for being, uh, you know, top of Q1. But if you're one step faster, then you don't get a point because then you're the bottom of Q2 or something. There's like a weird interconnect in there. Exactly. And then I thought, okay, well, how about a point system that... Like, you come up with a whole new point system so that points are given at qualifying as well, but then they're graduated so that race points are definitely worth more. But then I thought, no, that instantly makes the math, well, twice as complicated and more complicated than that still because it's basically two different point systems. Yeah. So I said, okay, qualifying isn't worth points. But for the Constructors' Championship and the constructor and the Constructors' Championship only, I was thinking it'd be very cool to give a point to the fastest pit stop of the race. Ooh, see, that's that's dangerous, though, because then if you're, you have an incentive to potentially skip on safety, because you're telling people, if you can right, do this but faster... but if you skimp on safety in any of the typical ways that are already very heavily scrutinized, don't forget it's draconian if you accidentally leave a wheel nut loose. Right. If you skip any of the... If you don't follow all the safety protocols, that pit stop doesn't count no i see i don't like that i i think i think it's it's setting up a weird incentive to try to be faster when like you say people are already pushing to be faster yes so that's that's where the fastest lap thing is interesting because right now there's no you don't get any benefit from having fastest lap but if you did we would probably see people especially you know if you're in the mid pack and you know of course anyone who's near the front is going to be trying for a win i mean everybody's trying for a win but for most people it's not realistic but if you could see you know some pick a driver, a mid-level team or whatever. If you say, okay, well, Kimi Raikkonen, he's in eighth place or whatever. Um, and um, if he has a reason to go out and say, okay, you know what? I'm going to put for fresh tires. I'm just going to go and just, you know, haul ass, do my best to, on a single lap, just get the most out of this car. That's something that right now there's no reason to do. They say, oh, I'm going to collect the points. I'm going to, you know, finish the race where I am, whatever. But it could make the last stint of the race a lot more interesting and could potentially, you know, you could see someone, um, who's already, you know, right now doesn't have a reason to push really hard, could then have a reason to. But I feel like teams already want to do the best fa- uh, best pit stops they can because obviously that's that's one way to gain time rather than, you know, pushing on track is to, you know, be stopped for a less amount of time. So I feel like people are already doing what they can to, to push for that. 
But uh, that's where I see I'm, the fast lap thing, I think, is, is in my mind, a, a better way to reward folks. The danger in that for me is what I don't want is if a team has a clear advantage, like I know that never happens, but let's just say theoretically that, I don't know, Mercedes for some reason gets an advantage um, one year. Is that just adding salt to the wound? Do you know what I mean? Like that that's that's where it's like, oh, okay. So instead of because that was the same thing I was thinking of with qualifying. It's like, oh, okay, because Hamilton's or, or Rosberg's really good. Um, you know, Mercedes got instead of forty three points on the weekend, they got forty five because they got qualifying, they got the pole and they got the fastest lap. Do you see what I'm saying? Like that was where I saw the danger in it. But I think we see, you know, fastest lap. Uh, well, you know, it would be different if uh, if there were an incentive to to, to hit it. Um, but I think you could get a Red Bull fastest lap. Every, you know, it could have oh, in, sure. in twenty fourteen. You know, yeah. potentially and even a Lotus look, or you know, who knows what. That's that's the I point. I see the advantages you see as well. Right, and where one of the criticisms of Formula One lately is that these drivers aren't driving flat out. Right, they're they're conserving tires, they're conserving fuel, and there's some reasons to do that. But if you introduce this incentive to push really hard and just get the fastest possible lap you can, then you'll see drivers driving the car, hopefully at 10 tenths, right? And potentially making mistakes and so on. But um, that's that's something people want is, you know, seeing these drivers push the cars just as hard as they possibly can, driving flat out. And I think incentivizing them to have a fast lap point or whatever, how many number, you know, what would make sense for a number of points. If you think, you know, should, if I, if I come second and have fastest lap, that should not be as many points as winning the race because it's not as good of an achievement. So is it one point or is it two points or whatever? You could look at that, but well, um, okay. So the the next thing I was thinking about, and I was like, I still I was undecided about this when I wrote it down, but I thought it was an interesting talking point. And the more I think about it, the more I like this idea. If we combined it with fastest lap in an interesting way, so this will take me a couple of seconds, but hear me out. I was considering giving a point to the driver that use the least amount of fuel throughout the race because we are in a new and efficient world. And if there is a proficiency and a proficiency in driving quickly, which is obviously still hugely incentivized, but in addition to that getting great fuel economy, I was like, "Mm, that's fascinating. So, compromise now that makes me actually more interested in this Most efficient lap of the race. Well... You get a point for fastest lap. You get a point for least fuel used. But if you can do both, you get three points. So if you can pull off the fastest lap and use the least amount of fuel, you get you get a bonus point for doing both at once. It's interesting, now, yeah. Yeah, because this is not because this is the way it always should have been. Or anything like that. But this is like, okay, Formula One, one of the big pushes is Formula One has to stay relevant, right? And to stay relevant, the automotive industry as a whole is going to be using less and less fuel because it has to. That is mandated by the U.S. government and by the European um, European Union government. I don't know how to – but mandated by the European Union. It's mandated by, by the U.S. government. It's going to become – um, more of an issue in China and Brazil and all the other major markets. It's it's happening. And so 
if Formula One can push itself in that direction and still be racing, I don't know. Is that worth doing? Because you want to make the, – the modern world is what it is. There's not much control over that. Or our point system isn't going to change that. But what can we do to make it more exciting? That's something we can do. Can we take the reality of it and, and add some a spice to it? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, I'll have to think about that one. Um, so I don't know if after this we have actually come up with a fun with cars recommended point system. Well, I'm willing. I'm willing to give a point for this fastest lap of the race. Okay. So, uh, but I am. I'm. Uh, this is. So what we now have is a provisional. Right. Okay. And what I would love to hear is from all of you guys. What do you guys think is a good idea that we came up with? Is a bad idea that we came up with? And what would you guys do in addition? We want to keep the point system as simple as possible, but. I think the point system should also reflect this new and modern era in Formula One that we're in. Exactly. So uh, to that end, please do visit funwithcars.com where you can comment on the show directly, which would be a good thing for, uh, for a conversation like this. Um, also, there'll be links there to our Facebook page and Twitter profile, which are various ways you can uh, you know send messages to us. Or you can also email feedback at funwithcars.com. And I don't think this is the last we'll be talking about this. Uh, you know, we're trying to you know keep things up in the off season and have plenty to to talk about. And I think this is a, a you know a good a good conversation point. If you uh, <laughs> allow me one last time of using that stupid pun, <laughs> um, but uh, I think we should wrap it up at this point. We don't have any predictions to do yet because there's not been a race since the last time we talked. And, I predict uh, that there will be predictions in the future. Okay, well that's a bold prediction there, sir. Well, um, but thank you as always for listening. Also, um, from a couple shows ago, we did ask for uh, folks' feedback on the shows and what you like and what you don't like and what you'd like to see differently. And I appreciate those who've been uh, sent stuff in so far. Yeah, the the people that have um, sent us. Um, feedback feedback <laughs> um have have made excellent points and we we ser- sincerely appreciate it because you know just like formula one is something that we're hugely uh passionate about this show is something that we're quite passionate about and we also we want to make it as good as it can be right so thank you for that and uh if you haven't uh, let us know what you think would be interesting then uh by, by all means visiting those various pages and emailing us and so on would be a handy way to do that and uh, we appreciate that as always so thank you again for listening till next time i am jim lau and i am robin warner wishing all of you to stay warm <laughs>